Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Micah. It is page 658 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. We're going to read just the first five and a half verses of Micah chapter 5, page 658 in the church Bibles. We're going to read God's word and then we're going to take a moment to ask for God's help for not only our time together now, but for a few people and families who um, are in need. Micah chapter 5, this is the word of the Lord. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And then verse 5 there, and he will be their peace. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word, and may God give us understanding of it. If you would, please, let's bow together and let's pray. Father, we have sung your praise. We have heard your word and Now, God, we call upon you to come, and in your great mercy, help us, your children. We would ask, God, for your mercy for the family of Bernice Cain. Um, We pray that your love and your grace would be there for the family as they mourn her passing. Um, We ask for that grace to be on Mark and Renee Rasmussen as well. We pray, Father, for... Uh, Kathy Hansen's sister, Patricia, and um, well, we thank you that she is with you now, and we pray for her family, Father, that your peace and your comfort would be with them, and we thank you for the assurance that you gave that Patricia belonged to you, and we give you glory, God, for that great rescue. We also ask, God, for your mighty power to continue to be on Shelley Petermeyer, Thank you that the chemo is doing its work and the cancer is shrinking. And we ask, God, that your will be done in the next steps of her treatment as the family decides what to do and that Shelley and Randy's faith and God would be evident to all and your grace, Father, would abound in their life. And then we pray for those who, who are sad at Christmas time. We thank you that you're with us when we're sad and You are with us when we're glad, and we pray that your tender mercy would come over those who need it most this holiday season. And now, God, we pray that you would speak in the stillness while we wait on you and quiet our hearts to listen in expectancy, to hear your voice, not simply for information to consider, but rather that we may have a life-changing encounter with you, the living God, 
framed by your holy word and the power of the Holy Spirit this Christmas Eve morning. Please help me to speak and all of us to listen well. For Jesus' sake, we ask this. Amen. Well, in 1987, when Martin Hanford published his very first Where's Waldo book, many of us just fell in love with the idea of sitting down either by ourselves or with our kids or with somebody we love and open up that hardcover book and try to find Waldo in all those different places in the midst of all those faces. You would say, there he is. No, no, that's not him. That's someone else. And, And on and on until you finally found that candy cane looking fella and you would take a pen or a pencil depending on what your wife said and then you would circle Waldo. Now I thought about Waldo and coming to Micah for two reasons. One, because for some of us where's Waldo might as be, you know, where's Micah? And, and the only thing we know about Micah is that he's that really nice boy that comes to church here. And then even if you find Micah, the book, not the boy, you know as much about Micah as I know about Polka, which, which I found out this morning is very little. That's the first thing. And the second thing, and coming to this Old Testament book, it serves as an opportunity to remind all of us that we lose our way around the Bible if we take our eyes off Jesus Christ. Right? We lose our way around the Bible if we take our eyes off Jesus Christ. We say this often here because we want to remind ourselves, in the Old Testament, Christ is predicted. In the gospel, Christ is revealed. In the Acts, Christ is preached. In the epistles, Christ is explained. And in Revelation, Christ is expected. So if we take our eyes off Jesus, when we read our Bible, not only will we misunderstand the Bible, we might begin to fall foul very quickly that all these thinking that all these stories are only here for like inspiration for Jesus to give a little, you know, boost or for some people a little kick in the pants every now and again. Forgetting that the message of the Bible is unless God intervenes in our lives in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our condition, our position, our sanctification, our hope, our eternity is absolutely hopeless. Timothy Keller is a preacher, and on one occasion he said, if on any level I believe that through my moral effort or zeal, through my spiritual disciplines, I can secure God's favor for my life, earn his blessing, then my motivation for doing these things is some some mixture of fear and pride. The fear is the desire to avoid punishment and to get some defense and leverage over God and others. I'm not like other people, Luke 18, is the pride, because I think I'm a cut above. In the final analysis, all the good I'm doing, I'm doing for myself. Loved ones, that is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is to drive our roots deeper into the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Now, traditionally, the verses that I read to you uh, this morning are read at Christmas time. They go out usually unexplained. This morning, with God's help, I'm, trying to, I'm going to try to explain them under three headings. If you have a worship folder, you'll see in the back there, information, humiliation, and expectation. So number one, information. And we remind ourselves that Christianity has a history, right? There is real history. That's something to think in our minds, uh, drive our wo- roots, if you would, into the awareness of Jesus deeper. 
Now, Micah himself lived in the time of other prophets in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah. Unlike Isaiah, Micah is called a minor prophet. Minor. Not because of the significance of what Micah was saying. Rather, because of the brevity of what Micah was saying. So, for example, Isaiah and Jeremiah hold a lot of space in the Old Testament because they have really long prophecies. But men like Nahum and Habakkuk and Amos, altogether 12, who traditionally referred to as minor prophets, they have shorter messages. Shorter messages, not unimportant messages. Because what all of the prophets have in common in the Old Testament is this. They were charged by God to be the mouthpiece for God to the people of God. And in doing this, they would put before them this continuous cycle of God's people, right? That God would grant them his blessing and deliverance only to find themselves again and again in bondage and enslavement on account of the rebellion. It was something like this. Oh, God, help me. And God helps them. But in time, they begin to live under their own rule and they go their own way. Trouble returns just like God said it would. They cry out to God. And at that point, because God is a gracious God, he would set before him these prophets who would in turn call them back to God. And oftentimes the people would come to God just for a bit. And then they wouldn't. And then they would. And then they wouldn't. And the cycle would go on and on and on. Now, in Micah's case, the problem is not only with the people of God, but with the leaders as well. So my guess is if you know one passage in all of Micah, it's probably Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This is what it reads. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And the leaders of these people knew this, but they didn't do this, and they refused to repent of God because of this. In fact, Micah in chapter 3, verse 2, he described these leaders as people who hate good and love evil. Just like John said in his prologue, right? Men who love darkness and hate light because their deeds are evil. If you think about it, nothing's really changed. Whether it's the 7th or 8th century B.C. in the time of Micah or 21st century A.D., the time of you and I, men and women love darkness, And so what's being made clear is that as God's people turn their backs on him, there's going to be a cost. So there's a cost when they choose to worship God their own way, and they make up a God in their minds, because the commands of God are very clear, and the commands of God are given for our benefit. So for example, the Ten Commandments are given by God to show God's people how to really, really live. That's the way to live. They were given not to limit us. They were given to benefit us because there's no benefit in becoming a thief, right? There's no benefit in mistreating our parents. There's no benefit in telling lies. That's no way to live. And God sets before his people this law, his commands. They understand it, and yet they willfully disobey it. So they, if you would, they did in their day what we are tempted to do in our our day. They create their own God to worship And their gods are ready to let them go their own way and do their own thing rather than framing their lives under the loving rule of the one and true and living God. Therefore, Micah is sent by God as the voice of God, telling the people of God they are in trouble. You're in trouble. But take heart that although God is a God of justice, thank God that God is equally a God of mercy. He's a God of chapter 7, verse 18, 
He's a God who pardons. Now, if you think about that, this, this is the whole story of the Bible, which finds its apex in the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Because it's at the cross, the justice of God is poured out on our sin through the love of God and the putting forward of his son. I'm going to say that again. This is the apex of the Bible. At the cross, the justice of God is poured out on our sin through the love of God and the putting forward of his son. So that everyone who has come to put their faith in Jesus Christ, they'll never know a speck of God's wrath. They'll never know a speck of God's condemnation. Why? Because they're such nice people? Far from it. I could be a rebel just as good as any rebel can be a rebel. No, we'll never know God's wrath because the son took it all on the cross. We sing about that a lot here. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin was laid on him here and the death of Christ. That's where I live. That's number one information. Micah is God's man with God's message to God's people hundreds of years before the giving of God's son in one century A.D. Second word then is humiliation. If your Bible's open, you'll see that in verse One, humiliation because this was the result of God's people going their own way and living their own way. Verse 1, now muster your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. Meaning foreign powers have surrounded Jerusalem. This is actual history, which in turn called them to gather all their troops to get ready for a fight. Okay, why were they fighting? Well, God was using a foreign power, a foreign nation, to execute his discipline over his people. Who were they fighting? Well, most scholars think as the Assyrians under Tiglath-Pileser, which sounds like a character from what, uh, Winnie the Pooh? But he is laying siege and King Zedekiah was the king. However, for now, all that is unimportant. But what is important is the people of God are humiliated and they are easily defeated. They are humiliated, verse 1b, and there's nothing their ruler can do. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Humiliation for the king, a very graphic picture. If you watch some of those uh, beat-em-up movies, you know, where there's, there's two guys who's holding one guy's arm and holding another guy's arm, maybe a lady because ladies do a lot of damage in movies nowadays. But anyway, they're holding the, the person's arm and the one guy or girl is just smacking away their face it's very humiliating it's kind of disgusting and the guy that's getting hit there's nothing he can do about it absolute humiliation that's what is main and plain here in verse one this is what the people of god are facing and the people at this time are saying wait a minute we were promised by god that we were going to have a royal king forever that we were undefeatable And it looks like this whole thing's going down because it looks like this royal order as we see our king taking this beat down, that's all over. And so the people are wondering, did God lie? Did God lie? And of course, we could say that in our own life. Sometimes things get so bad, we're like, God, did you lie? But remember, in their case, they're in this situation because they refuse to acknowledge their rebellion. And they refuse to say, now listen carefully, this is all they had to say. God, we're sorry, you were right, will you please forgive us, and will you please help us to live better? That's all they had to say, but they would not do it. So what happened? Well, think Bible and think Christmas, because this begins to set the good news before God's people and for the whole world. 
Isaiah said it like this, people walking in darkness have seen a great light. So in the midst of their rebellion, darkness, a light is shown. Micah here and Isaiah in the early chapter of his books, they say the same thing. Micah says it like this in verse 1. They're going to strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. The nation, its leaders, powerless, darkness. There's nothing they can do. But verse 2, you see it there, here comes light. And this promised person of hope comes in the midst of their humiliation, right? It can't get much worse. Darkness is thick, but here comes the light. Now, this is so important as you think about Christianity, because so often when people speak of Christianity, they make it sound like hope is only off by itself. And so when you become a Christian, or if you just can get it right, you'll never have to experience darkness. You'll never have to experience devastation, humiliation, or loss. And any sensible person would say nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus, for the joy set before him, Hebrews 12, he endured the cross. Jesus, uh, during his days on earth, he learned obedience from what he what? From what he suffered. Now think, where is this promised hope in verse 2? Where is our hope that's being promised to them? Where is it fulfilled? It's fulfilled in only one person. It's fulfilled in the reality of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ comes to this world and he humbles himself. Great humiliation for Jesus. Because as you think about it, think about his end. He was beaten to a bloody pulp. He was rejected. He was despised. Full fist to face. Spat on. Naked on a cross. It can't get much more humiliating than that. So in the midst of his humiliation, he was taking it all for us in order. Now listen carefully. That our only hope in life and in death is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is real and he's fixed and nothing else hinges on our hope other than Christ. And so the humiliation he took, he endured for our sin, is where our hope is and nothing else. You see, what happens sometimes is we begin to set our hope on other things and other people. We thank God for both, but they're not him. They are given to us for a time, and then they're taken away. I don't want any of my friends to die. I don't want any of my family members to die. I don't want my kids to die. I don't want my wife to die, but they're going to die. I'm going to die. So what do I do? Well, I hitch my wagon to joy's permanent source. And that permanent source is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's my only hope. He's our only hope in life and in death. We we sing this song on occasion. uh, Stuart Townend, there's a hope that burns within my heart that gives me strength for every passing day. A glimpse of glory now revealed in meager part, yet drives all doubt away. Okay, how does it do that? Well, here it is. I stand in Christ with sins forgiven and Christ in me, the hope of heaven. That's joy's permanent source. Micah continues, verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, and that's just an old name in Genesis 32 for Bethlehem. Okay, so that would have been a great surprise to his readers. Why isn't this king coming out of Jerusalem? 
I mean, that's where the high people and the high places hang out. And so what is this place Bethlehem like? Well, verse 2b, it's really tiny. Though you are small among the clans of Judah. You can't see it in the English, but it's there in the Hebrew. Essentially what he's saying is that if you put all the tribes together of Judah, that on the very bottom, and in fact, it's thousands. That's the implication there. That on the very bottom would be Bethlehem. The last one on the list. So they're not top 10. They're not top 100. They are the, the bottom of the barrel. How humiliating. But that's God's plan. Bethlehem is an unlikely place. It is a irrelevant place. In fact, its relevancy lies in the fact that it's irrelevant. Now, for the person who doesn't spend a whole lot of time in the Bible, this won't make sense. Because by nature, what, strength and intellect and wealth and achievement, that's where hope is and that's where security is to be found. However, if you read your Bible proper, you'll find that verse 2 makes complete sense because this is how God actually works. God usually doesn't work with the strong and the mighty. He usually works with the weak and the lowly. Remember Mary's song in Luke's gospel that he sends the rich away empty, but he fills the hungry, the needy with good things. So I want you to think, and especially if you're a kid, think about the story of David and Goliath. Remember the Goliath of Gath with his helmet of brass, right? He's Mr. Awesome and how he mocked the people of Israel. And their tough soldiers were afraid of this guy. And every day, at the end of the day, they would go, no, thank you. We're not going to fight him. But who's finally brought in? Tiny little David. He's a shepherd. He's not a ninja. A shepherd from where? From Bethlehem. And God says, that's my man from my place. King Saul says, listen, you're a really small guy. You better take my armor. And it's kind of humorous, right? David has this real heavy armor on. It reminded me me of my grandfather. The very first time my parents bought him a suit. And it was so cute because he liked to wear clothes baggy. And so if you can, I don't know if you can see this, but his suit came down to like that on on his little fingers. And it looked real big. That's how I pictured King David or little David with his big armor. And David's like, I can't go fight like that. And he takes his armor off. I'm going to go fight giant man just as I am. Okay, so David, what are you? Well, I'm little. I'm an irrelevant shepherd boy from an irrelevant place, Bethlehem. I've got five stones and I got one sling, but I have one God. And he wins. And loved ones, when the actual day of the birth of Christ is announced from heaven... Who does the announcement go to? It goes to the shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Nearby where? Bethlehem. So that privilege doesn't come to the people who think they're strong and mighty or people who want to be strong and mighty. It doesn't come to Mr. and Mrs. Mover and Shaker and the terrific people. But it comes to shepherds in an irrelevant place with an irrelevant occupation because that's God's way. That's God's way. I heard this this week. The gospel works so much better around the margins. The gospel works so much better around, if you would, the people on the margins. You line up every New Testament account of angels telling about the birth of God's son, who do they come to? 
They come to people of no standing, people of no relevance, people living in humiliating conditions in the eyes of the world. And you see, that is, is why some people, religious people, try to update the Christmas message, right? And so they give a few pals and they give a few whams and we better have some, oh, you know, isn't that cute? Or we win. And we think that'll really get the people in. But they just stumble over that. They stumble over it because the cradle of Christ is tied to the cross of Christ. I was telling this person about Jesus, and he essentially said this, you're telling me the answer to my biggest problem lies with a baby in a cradle who's going to grow up to be a man hanging on a cross. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, that's ridiculous. And this whole ending thing, this, this cross thing and blood sounds a little violent. So why would you tell me that? And I told him, I didn't invent it. It's here in the Bible. It's been preached for centuries. It's actually real history. There's a man named Nicholas Kristof. He writes op-ed pieces for the New York Times. And for the past couple of years, he has a title, Am I a Christian? And he'll talk to relevant Christian people. So last year, he talked to uh, Jimmy Carter. The year before that, it was... um, who was it? It was, I have his name here, Timothy Keller. This year, he, he talked to Bishop Joseph Tobin, St. Peter's Basilica. He asked the same question. He's listen. He says, am I a Christian? Because I doubt the virgin birth, and I don't believe in the resurrection. And so this is what the cardinal said. People, I guess, are free to take whatever they want, just like there's wisdom in non-Christian religions that Christians appropriate. But the most mind-boggling miracle is the incarnation. We believe that the creator of the universe, the one who existed before time and before anything else, became one of us. If you accept that, there are a lot of other things that don't seem to be quite as unbelievable. The miracles are not God showing off. They were actually pointing towards who God is and who this carpenter from Nazareth really was. Listen to Tim Keller's answer. If something is truly integral to a body of thought, you can't remove it without destabilizing the whole thing. A religion can't be whatever you desire it to be. If I'm a member of the board of Greenpeace and I come out and say climate change is a hoax, they'll ask me to resign. I could call them narrow-minded, but they would rightly say that, they, that there have to be some boundaries for dissent or you couldn't have a cohesive, integrated organization. And they'd be right. It's the same with any religious faith. It's the same with Christianity. You can't have a Christ without an incarnation. Again to the text, but you Bethlehem, out of you, verse 2, will come from me, one who will rule over Israel. Remember Samuel's promise in 2 Samuel 7, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. In other words, the promise was made right there in the Bethlehem of a kingdom which will outlast every kingdom. And nations will come and nations will go. But out of Bethlehem, the never-ending king of the never-ending kingdom will come. That's why Micah says what he says in verse 2. Do you see it? Whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. In other words, all the way back in history and beyond that, all the way back into eternity, this promised king has always been. Okay, so what kind of king will he be? Well, that's verse 4. Do you see it? He's going to stand in the place of authority. He'll shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. That's divinity. And in the majesty of the name of the Lord, he will grant security 
and he will be their peace. Now, that's good, right? He's going to be their peace, meaning their whole life's well-being, peace. He ties to himself, and he promises this peace now and forever. It's permanent. Now, think with me. I mean, is that just a big, fat lie? That's a big promise. Is it a big, fat lie? I came across this book. It's a kid's book. It's called Five Minutes Peace. It might be more for mothers. And so, (laughs) well, here's why. Sorry. I should have said the other thing before that. Anyway, can't get the polka out of my head. (laughs) So, So it's a mother elephant, and she just wants five minutes of peace. And so she goes to the, to the bathroom, and she draws water for a bath, bath, and she steps in, and then one by one, each of her kids come in. <laughs> so one and two, I think there's five little elephants, and they're all having a bath. And the mother's good, and she plays with them, and then she says, okay, kids, I'm going to get out. Why, Mom, why are you leaving? And she says, I just want five minutes of peace. <laughs> Remember John Lennon? He had that song, All We Are Saying, Give Peace a Chance. It's not horrible. He had his Christmas song, and so Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Let's hope it's a good one without any fear. And then he has the children's choir sing, War is over if you want it. And we do. Stevie Wonder's Christmas song. It used to be my son's favorite Christmas song. Someday at Christmas, when men won't be boys, playing with bombs like kids play with toys. One warm December, December, our hearts will see a world where people are free. Who would not like that? Peace, personal, global, national, familial, peace. But what do we know? Globally, nationally, family, personally, there's no peace. And you may be here and you're honest enough to say, if I could just have a bit of that peace, five minutes peace. Well, this is what the Bible says. In Jesus Christ, you have the Prince of Peace. And when he comes to rule and reign in your heart for real, he gives you, now listen carefully, He gives you a peace which is completely undeserved. Therefore, it is secure. Get that? He gives you a peace which is completely undeserved. Therefore, it is secure. If our peace was tied to our behavior, it would not be permanent peace. But it's tied to Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And his return, permanent, permanent peace. Verse 3, Israel will be abandoned until the time, that delay, when she who is in labor gives birth. So, so the people there, there's going to be a time of delay. This is why it's prophecy. You see the second part of verse 3, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. So I said, what is that? Well, here's the best I can do. Romans eight twenty nine. Hebrews 2, 11, Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. So here's the deal of uh, verse 3b. The great and sovereign Lord and King Jesus has children. Jesus is a gift from the Father to us, 
And we who are in Christ are a gift from the Father to Jesus. That's amazing. That's the family of God, that God is putting together a family, people who are his very own. And Micah, under God's charge, he's looking forward, and he can't see it perfectly. But he says that's enough to say, this king is coming. And you can be sure of this. And it actually begins with a birth. Most of you know this. There are over 127 predictions about Jesus, his birth, his death, his rule. They all came true. Verse 2 is a promise piece. Verse 3 is a delayed piece for those people in that day. But in Christ, verse 4 and 5, we have the Prince of Peace. It is fulfilled, it is given, it is permanent. And it will last forever. Final point. We get information, humiliation, expectation. So remember between the Old and New Testament, there was this 400-year uh, period of silence. Now, 400 years is a long time. We're not even 400 years as a nation. And so heaven was silent. Generations would come and generations would go. And they would say, where is this promised king? I mean, he promised peace. There's no peace. I mean, it seems like we've been abandoned. It's a very human thought. We live in darkness, and it looks like we're going to stay in darkness. What Micah says there is that you will live in the experience of this divine abandonment until, verse 3, until the time when she who is in labor will give birth. And so 400 years go by, and she does give birth. A few more years go by, and here come the wise men. Where do they go? Do they go to Bethlehem or Jerusalem? No, they go to Jerusalem because they're scientists and they're not theologians. They begin to ask around, where is this promised king? I mean, Jerusalem is the place for these kinds of things. King Herod finds out. He goes to his Bible guys and say, guys, what's going on? Where is this Messiah? Where is this king going to be born? They tell him quick as a wink, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Now, here's the point. When the expectation of Micah 5 is provided in Jesus, when Micah 5 begins to come true, the reaction of those people in that day, it's no different than many people in our day. It's either hostility, apathy, or faith. Find yourself in one of these, hostility. So that's seen in King Herod. He's the picture of the person who says, look, I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm going to be the only king here. And he's the archetype of the person who says, I will not have a king over my life. A baby Jesus is fine. Uh, The gift thing, fine. The blessing thing, fine. But no king. I want a religious figure who who sits in silence in the backseat of my life. And then I call him when I need him. Because you never know. Right? But I don't want him driving the car of my life. I'm going to call my own shots. I'm going to go my own way. That's Herod. That's hostility towards Jesus. I'm my own king. I will not have another king. I pray to God that is not any of us here this morning. Then there's apathy. And this, unfortunately, is with religious people, right? Because what's so amazing is that they can answer Herod's question quick as a wink, and they act like they don't care. They get Micah 5, 2 Samuel 1, or 2 Samuel 7, and 1 Chronicles, And they say, yeah, the king is coming, and he's going to come as a a shepherd over his people from Bethlehem. And those who are the guardians of the Old Testament, they could care less. 
Why? Why? Because, you know, he didn't come the way that they wanted him to come. As Jesus grows up, he doesn't fit the bill. He doesn't seem like Superman, right? How is that guy from that family, how is he going to kick the Romans' tail? How is he going to put us in place of power? How is he going to make us number one again? He doesn't look like much. He's so weak and so pitiful. That's apathy. Can't see Jesus as he really is. Finally, faith. Okay, out of all that, who has faith? The wise men, science guys. I mean, think of this. What gets into the heart of an intelligent person that moves them physically, moves them geographically, moves them intellectually, and moves them financially until they bow down in reverence at the feet of a little child in humility. They give spectacular gifts, gold, of frankincense and myrrh, and say to this child, you are this promised king. You are this promised king. How does that happen? See, the familiarity of the story takes some of the, the, the beauty out of it. How does that happen? It only happens by the power of Almighty God. The work of the Spirit of God as men and women humble themselves before God. Loved ones, when we leave here this morning, the dividing line between us is only one dividing line. And the dividing line has nothing to do with the color of our skin, the skill of our hands, the wisdom of our minds, uh, the beauty of our bodies. It doesn't have anything to do even with the sincerity of our heart. There's only one dividing line. It is between faith in Christ and unbelief in Christ. And you got to be dead honest. Which one? Which side are you on? Because I have to tell you, if we will not know Jesus as king in this life, we will not live in his kingdom on the other side of death. If we choose to ask Jesus to leave us alone here, he will leave us alone forever there. But if you put this story together, Think how it honestly speaks to the human condition. Think of its history that you can verify. Think of the mystery of it, of the need for God to intervene in his love by his son. That he who pours his judgment on his son showers a rebellious people with mercy and with hope and with peace. What a gift. What a gift. Let me close with this. This comes from the online edition of The Guardian. This is Professor Karen Pine of the University of Hertford. And what she has done is she created this mathematical formula for the perfect Christmas gift. I'm going to give you the formula because there's still time. It's L times 2 plus O plus E2 minus PD plus EM equals PP. Here's the translation. Listening plus observation, plus effort, minus your personal desire, <laughs> plus empathy, equals perfect present. Okay, here's the Christian perfect present. Jesus Christ saying, take me as I am, because I take you the same way. 
Take me as I am because I take you the same way. Who is a pardoning God like thee who has grace so rich and free? Christ the Lord, he is our eternal king and he himself is the peace with God that all our sins require. This is why Jesus came. Embrace him, enjoy him, believe him, call on him. He won't turn you away. I guarantee it. Thanks for your attention. Let's pray. Father, would you, by your great mercy, awake our hearts and minds to the goodness and the greatness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, this Christmas Eve morning. May we be given the grace to anticipate the better country and the better city whose builder and maker is you, the living God. And may we give our best strength to you now to enjoy our best life, which is coming through Jesus Christ in his heaven. Now to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, be glory forever and ever. Amen.